Welcome to the Renalab podcast. On this show, we will be exploring the science behind the Research and Innovation Network Austria, also known as RENA. This is a vibrant network of Austrian scientists and innovators in North America, and it's going to be a fascinating journey that I get to share with you. On this first episode, I had the opportunity to interview Gerfried Stocker, an engineer who often finds himself at the intersection of art and technology. He is currently the managing and artistic director of Ars Electronica, an art, technology, and society festival. He also frequently consults with international companies on many topics surrounding creativity and innovation management. He has worked on some truly amazing things. So let's kick off this first episode with Gerfried Stocker. All I know about you at this moment <laughs> is that you help coordinate a show that did the algorithms for drones. Yeah. <laughs> so can, can you like fill me in on the rest or just and we can start with the drones and I can yeah. so to say reverse engineer my story from from this example. Yeah, uh, we can certainly do that. Um so it's only one project, but of course it ended up to be a big uh, thing and it's very significant for Lots of the stuff that we are doing. So. so I have a clip here where you worked with Intel to test their drone orchestra technology. So well, that's the interesting point because we didn't work to test their drones. Oh. We actually invented and developed this whole story in 2012. Uh, me and my team came together to uh, work on a really inspiring and crazy idea mm -hmm. uh, so say the fireworks of the future because yeah, okay. we were commissioned to do a big open air event and we thought you know it's no longer appropriate especially for an organization that is so devoted and dedicated to the digital world uh, to just fire up uh, 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 pyrotechnics and, and fireworks what could be a new way of doing fireworks. Of course, we came up with laser shows and things like this. Uh, but then somebody said, okay, well, why don't we try to work with these uh, drones, uh, the quadcopters, which were quite popular in 2012 uh, in Europe, so at the beginning, basically. Yeah. And uh, we said, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, let's try it. We were talking with, at this point, there were two laboratories, one in Switzerland and one in Pittsburgh, who were already doing synchronized drone flights, but only indoors. Right, okay. Because you need a good tracking system and this kind of thing. But we wanted and we needed it outdoors Outdoors. for about 100,000 people audience. Right. So both said, yeah, it's possible, but we don't have enough time. Or they were asking for a lot of money to make it happen. So we only were left with the possibility to do it ourselves. Uh, and we found a company in Germany that was producing drones. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were very uh, uh, also happy with this idea and collaborated with us. So they helped us to implement the GPS uh, into the main board of the drone, also to refine uh, the electronics and the software on board of the drones, yeah. so that we actually could achieve uh, a show. Uh, the first one was in 2012 with 50 drones, where we had a choreography coming from a 3D engine. So in the same way as you make a 3D animation right. and then you render it to the screen, yeah. we developed a program where you 
create your 3D animation, but you render it to a swarm of drones. Okay. Uh, each of the drones was equipped with uh, uh, LED lights that okay. were also computer controlled. And so they were really like a screen mm -hmm. flying in the sky. That's why we came up with the name uh, Spexel, so Space Pixels, of course. Okay. And uh, we found a sponsor, an uh, industry company in, in Austria, who was also excited about the idea. So we could afford uh, 50 drones to uh, uh, fly with. And uh, then we got another two from the company that we collaborated with. So we had 52 drones yeah. for the general rehearsal yeah. uh, of the show. Uh, and it worked totally fine. But then uh, heavy clouds came. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you really have heavy clouds, then GPS is not so reliable anymore. Right. Yeah. And we programmed our drones in a way that when they lose the GPS signal, what they do is just stopping in place and waiting to get a new connection. Yeah, yeah. So they were waiting and waiting and waiting until the battery ran out, of oh, course, wow. and then boom, 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 boom. Oh, wow. They were really all dropping from... Wow. And uh, uh, two of them dropped into the Danube River, were lost uh, forever, but the rest, actually, we could uh, rescue and repair until the next evening. And actually, the, the, the first real flight with the 50 drones was already the performance, and it worked perfectly well. It was wow. really a wonderful experience because it was something completely new. You never had... You, 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 when you saw it, you really didn't know what's going on because yeah, yeah. you know the stars, of course. Yeah, you yeah. know uh, lights or uh, lights from airplanes and things like this. But 50 light points in the sky, moving, changing right. their colors, informing pattern. This was really a unique experience. We got immediately a lot of uh, uh, response. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, the, the YouTube video had you know uh, immediately hundreds of thousands of clicks, and then uh, uh, Paramount. Uh, pictures uh, got information about this and they asked us if we could do a show in London uh, on, above the Tower Bridge in London for an advertisement of the new uh, Star Trek movie. So they asked us to fly the Star Trek logo into the sky of London. Oh, nice. Which, of course, was, yeah, super, <laughs> let's yeah. do it. Uh, was uh, really a great thing. It worked perfectly well. And so we got uh, immediately some other shows. We were flying in Dubai uh, for an event. And then Intel nice. uh, okay. uh, recognized what we are doing and they came on board. And for about two years, they were really a very good sponsor and yeah. supporter of it. And with their money, we were able to uh, upgrade to 100 drones right. and develop uh, the choreography and the whole thing so that we could fly 100 drones simultaneously uh, in one choreography. Uh, and this was officially the first Guinness Book record. Wow. Uh, Meanwhile, the record is, I think, 1,347 drones uh, by yeah. a Chinese company. Yeah. Intel has now, I'm not sure if it's really a business. I think they do it more for uh, uh, public relations and, yeah. and, and, and advertisement. They made the big stunt uh, uh, in uh, the opening of the Olympics in, in, in Korea, South Korea, uh, last year. Um, so it's really became now a big show, and there are many companies now uh, doing this kind of thing. But uh, the nice thing is that it was not driven by industry or technology, but by a bunch of really inspired artists and engineers. Yeah. Uh, and that we were really able to pull this off. And yeah. uh, it's still one of the great things, you know, to see now that this is so popular and that's uh, a wonderful thing. For us, it was interesting also because uh, we gained so much experience with this. Yeah. 
that uh, immediately we could start a lot of interesting research projects with mm -hmm. the industry. Uh, and we have developed now something that is called Swarm Operating System mm -hmm. that allows us to synchronize uh, different types of drones, even some on the floor, like with right. wheels, some flying, uh, to uh, sort of synchronize them in choreographies, which is uh, basically the same thing that you need for any type of uh, logistics yeah. that you want to do with drones. And the interesting thing now, so to say, to reverse engineer yeah. from this story, to our organization or to who I am is, is this combination or that it's a perfect example uh, of a combination and collaboration of art, technology, working for society. Nice. And this is what Ars Electronica is all about. So this Future Lab that was uh, the uh, unit that developed these drone shows, these Pexels, Uh, this is one of our departments. Um, we also run a permanent exhibition center as an education center to help people, especially the young generation in Austria, to get to know better the possibilities of new technologies, yeah. to become creators than just uh, consumers yeah. of technology. We have a very big festival for art, technology and society, yeah. actually since 39 years. Mm -hmm. Next year we have our 40 years anniversary. Wow. And already in the 1979, it was called Festival for Art, Technology and Society. Okay. And since then, our basic mission is to use the means of art the sensitivity, the knowledge of artists to, on the one side, better understand how new technology is actually changing our culture, is really changing our society. But more than just learning to know about it, uh, the more important thing is, of course, uh, creating or developing the skills Right. And the abilities that are necessary to remain in control yeah. of this. So it's, a, I think, a very important educational work yeah. where art is, so to say, the core of it. Yeah. Uh, education is what we do for society. Mm -hmm. And these collaborations with the industry, and we do a lot of them, of course, is an important way to earn the money yeah. so that we can afford the art and the education. That's so amazing. Um, let's go back to Inception. This is an idea. So... So, so what field of study, what, what, what is your title? Like what? Well, my title in this uh, organization is I'm the artistic director and yeah. also managing director. Yeah. Um, from my education, I have this nice situation. I have a technical education. I'm engineer of communication technology, as it was called then. Uh, but I also had an artistic career already before I moved into Ars Electronica and sort of they changed the site from being a producing artists to be now a manager of an arts and culture organization. Uh, but it allows me, of course, in a very good way to communicate with both sides. Mm -hmm. And actually, most of our people are this kind of hybrid personalities yeah. uh, who sometimes do more artwork, then they do more engineering right. or software development or project management. Yeah. And uh, I think that's really important to be this kind of hybrid personality. Yeah, it, was, it sounds like you're just following your heart and doing what's fun. This is really, I mean, I think I, I'm a super, in a super privileged uh, position and I had this uh, wonderful uh, coincidence and lucky situation that in 95 already, uh, when uh, Ars Electronica moved from being just a festival to also build this permanent basis, the Ars Electronica Center, this educational uh, um, uh, part of it, this institution, 
I was successfully applying for the job they were just uh, uh, calling for. 1995 already. So I'm doing this really for a very long time. And it was really, this was like from scratch. Because in 1995, very few people really had an idea of, you know, what the digital revolution suddenly would mean in cultural and social terms. So uh, actually nobody really knew what these guys are doing, (laughs) which gave us a lot of freedom. Uh, And since we were very dedicated to really serve, so to say, both sides, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the artist community, but also the uh, general society and working with the companies, we could establish uh, very fast uh, a a strong platform that allowed us to really operate even beyond just the budget for running a museum. Uh, And this exchange with the industry, of course, always was a very important source of uh, inspiration, innovation where we learned a lot what's really going on in the field of technology and having all the input and the inspiration from the art from the artists allowed us to formulate or to develop a very particular point of expertise right in the center of this main machine interface so all our expertise and all the projects that we are doing are focused on this question you know how is the position of humans of us users in a world that is more and more driven by technology coined by technology yes so interesting prior 95 you you said you've got the diverse things as far as art what kind of artist did you paint or music (laughs) or actually i come from music uh but and and i was working with computer music which i really like i mean it's conceptually but it's a completely, you know, uh, uh, disappointing work actually as an artist or not satisfying because you work for weeks or months in your studio with all your equipment and then you have a wonderful piece of art, but how to present it? Because the only thing you do is you set up loudspeakers and then you switch yeah, a play. And I mean, that's not satisfying for as an artist, I think, because right. especially in music, the performance, the right. body is a very important part. Right. And it's definitely not satisfying for an audience. Right. So at this point, I sort of rediscovered my technological skills mm-hmm. and started to develop interactive situations where I basically prepared the elements of the sound environment and the music, and then created interfaces where the audience, when they were coming uh, to explore, to see the exhibition, the installation, where they were actually playing this like an instrument. So the the, the first big project was a a gallery space, three quite large rooms, uh, and we put many very thin wires from floor to ceiling. uh, And when people were moving, it was unavoidable for them to touch the wires. Oh, wow. And every time one of these wires was touched, yeah. there was a, a trigger, a kind of microphone that was going to the computer and triggering a sound. Wow. And of course, then people immediately recognized how oh, this is like a, a big instrument yeah. we can play with it. This was, I think, 1990. Okay. Uh, and uh, this was uh, the type of art that uh, I was doing then. I was uh, working together with a, a good friend of mine, a colleague who was more the software developer. Yeah. Yeah. I was more the hardware developer and together we created these interactive experiences and suddenly seeing the excitement of people that, you know, was not comparable, as I said, you know, when you play them the music from the loudspeakers, they say, uh, very well done. But here suddenly, you know, not only the experts, but ordinary people from the street totally enjoyed this. And, And this was really the moment where I also discovered 
that I'm personally uh, very much interested in this participation thing, in educating, really working with people. And uh, this is something that I found uh, perfectly well then in my job for Ars Electronica, because that's also our core mission is working for the people and working with the people. Mm -hmm. So fascinating. It's, it's, my mind was going like a million miles an hour as you were telling me all this. So I want to go back to So part of what our audience is, part of what we want to do with the show is, is, you know, there's, there's kind of be a mentor to uh, both kids that are that are starting off their career or even someone that's mid-career that said, I want to I want to do something different. And maybe even give them permission to like, hey, it's okay to follow your heart and do what you want to do. And things will work out even better if you do it that way. So what I want to do is is maybe capture um, your life journey as far as where you started when you went to school and then how you kind of, you know, you, you explain a piece of that I think, mm -hmm. but I think we can go a little bit further back. So before the art, like, what in your gut said I, I want to study art do you have family in art or do you, you just you just kind no, of neither i come from a very small rural uh, village uh, in austria uh, my father was a carpenter my grandfather still was a farmer uh, my first idea was to become an engineer so this was my my first education then I made actually not unsuccessful my first steps in literature, yeah. uh, but soon I found out that this is not what I'm really interested in. So I went to music. Then, as already described, making music was also not. Uh, so I, I, I think my whole life, also the way how I run uh, our institution now since more than 20 years, is in a way, I don't know if this is the right term in, in English, it's opportunistic in, in a way that I try to see opportunities and then try it out, test it. Not, you know, making a big master plan or a big business plan, and then finally, when you have the plan, you start to convince people. But even when the idea is still small, try to make a prototype, try to do it. Yeah. And then, early enough, you know, don't run too long in this direction. Assess for yourself and also with others whether this is a viable direction or not. Mm. If not, you know, just leave mm -hmm. it. Go to something completely else, because then I think what, what you discover is that among all the different ways how you try to so to say, pursue your dreams, your visions, yeah. there is a kind of common story behind it. Yeah. And this might take a long time to find out what mm -hmm. is your common theme, your topic, your story. Yeah. But uh, the best way to find it out there is uh, exploring it. And this was also when, when, when we started in, in 95, 96 uh, to work for us, Electronica. Um, we immediately also set up uh, uh, what's called our future lab, us, Electronica Future Lab, mm -hmm. um, mainly with the idea that we needed a unit that was able to produce our ideas. Because when you think 95, uh, interactive art was existing. There were some artists all over the world doing this stuff. But there was definitely no company where you could go and say, please produce an interactive exhibition for my museum. Mm -hmm. So the only way to make a museum really 100% interactive, which was our goal, was to do it ourselves. And uh, the Future Lab was set up from the beginning not as a laboratory that like a design studio or something that would make beautiful drawings and renderings and yeah. that's it, uh, or write uh, interesting papers. We specifically said this is a producing lab and every project at least needs to end in a prototype. Okay. This is uh, where we want yeah. to go. And I think this is this important thing, you know, try it, 
out. It's not, uh, I wouldn't say, you know, just trust your heart or your guts. I mean, that's uh, a little bit too naive. Uh, yeah. But the point is, when you start to try out things, mm -hmm. you recognize very soon whether it's possible or not. Yeah. You recognize whether soon whether it's too big for you, right. whether you need, so to say, to improve your resources, yeah. or whether you need to change uh, the idea. Yeah. You find it out much better. So it's not just, you know, blind uh, self-confidence. Right. Uh, I think what you need is, of course, a very self-critical uh, awareness. Yeah. Uh, but then by, by trying out, you really find your way. That's amazing. I really like the way you articulated that because, yes, follow your heart, but through testing. And one of the things that we have to embrace is the word failure because a lot of these things will fail, but failure is part of the education process. Yeah. And you've got to, like, as you said, yeah. test it out, build a prototype. I like how you... Never use the word failure. It's like, we're just going to build this, build a prototype. <laughs> if it doesn't work, move on. I really don't like the word failure. I mean, yeah. I think it's important in the in the discourse always to embrace failure, failure culture and things like this. But it's not about failure and nobody wants to make failures. Right. I mean, when you make a failure, no matter where, mm -hmm. uh, you don't feel very well. So. Yeah. I think it's much more important to look at these opportunities. Yeah. It's it's not whether you make a failure. It's you using, seeing an opportunity and at least trying right. to make sense out of it, to, yeah. to develop something out of it, is itself not a failure. Right. You might have, you know, or it might be a situation where all the frame conditions are not perfectly well so that you really are able to use the opportunity. Right. But that's not really a failure. I think the only failure would be not looking for opportunities yeah. and using it. And I think what we all want also when we talk about this importance of risk-taking and a failure culture, and there's a lot of discussion in Europe, we yeah. always look to United States and say, you know, in Silicon Valley, they have this failure culture and uh, you can fail, fail easy and things like fast, this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think uh, the, the point behind why this is interesting is, of course, the more you are also accepting the failure, mm -hmm. uh, the more opportunities you are trying out. And that's the, 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 the so to say, the, the leverage yeah. is not the failure. Also, failure as a way to learn is, is quite okay. But I think the leverage is really when you are more open to, to the possibilities of failure, you automatically have more chances to try out different directions and different different things. And I think this is what is really then accelerating innovation. This is what's accelerating your personal way, your collection of experience. Yeah. And I think at the end, it's all about experience. I mean, right. this is the, the best, you know, single idea that you might have is not really very helpful when you don't have enough experience how to deal with it. Yeah. And so I think it's really about building up these experiences. Mm -hmm. And we don't have, I think it's not about celebrating failure, but celebrating opportunities. Yeah, I, like, I like the way you, you position that. It's just, it's this scientific testing of ideas and, and then gaining experience along the way. I really, I really like the yeah. way you've, you've, you've framed that because you're right. I mean, here we, we say, feel, Get comfortable with failure, fail often, fail fast. And, but what you just said was completely correct. I mean, even though you say I failed at this business and it's okay, it still doesn't feel right. But if you look at it the way you're looking at it, which is, hey, this is an opportunity. You're just scientific testing that out. And, you know, if it doesn't work, move on, gain the experience, move on. Same thing, it's just in a more positive light and feeling yeah. when that happens. And the gain is the experience. Mm -hmm. This is what you win from it. So yeah. with every of these attempts, 
you are at the end stronger, you are better. And this is why I don't like the word failure at all, yeah. because at the end, it's always a, a win. Yes, it's true. It. It's true. Every, and I, I do say that a lot. It's like, no matter what, at the end of the day, um, everything is experience and education. And the thing that you learn along the way help you build the next thing at the end of the day. Yeah. What's, yeah. what's on the horizon for you and the work that you're doing now? First of all, where... where Where are you located? Where's, where's, where do you do your work every day? Actually, we are in Austria, a okay. uh, small country in Europe, okay. and uh, uh, in Linz, which is uh, only the third largest city in Austria, yeah. where you cannot really say large because it only has 200,000 inhabitants. Yeah. So it's actually, uh, you know, compared to international standards, it's a, it's a very small city, but it has, of course, a lot of advantages because yeah. it's a very strong, tight network mm -hmm. there. You have really good access to resources, to people. And for one reason or another, in 1979, this was the place where some people came together and sort of asked Electronica uh, yeah. to start it. And... Uh, For us, it's now the place where we are having our home base. Yeah. But since many years, we have a very strong international program. We yeah. have, since a few years, uh, our own Ars Electronica Japan department, which is uh, at the moment, I think, four people full-time uh, working only for the Japanese business. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a lot of uh, relationships and activities going on in Australia. Just at the moment, while we are speaking, we have Ars Electronica exhibitions in Berlin, Beijing, Seoul and Moscow. Wow. In the last two weeks, we also made us electronica concerts in Brussels and in Osaka. Mm -hmm. So we really, uh, and I think again, in a, in a very typical way, uh, using opportunities. We never tried to make us electronica center or something yeah. somewhere else, you know, like Guggenheim yeah. going here and there. Uh, because we, we much more prefer to work out of uh, Whoa, situations yeah. Yeah, yeah. and seeing, you know, if, if the conditions are right, yeah. then let's go there and do something. And I was about to ask you, how do you pick your next location? But it sounds like there is no formal, uh, now we're going to take over this city or that city. It's like the opportunity shows up and if it all makes sense, you just do it. Yeah. I mean, of course, this also has some... Uh, uh, aspects that you have to learn to deal with because uh, the the like in our case uh, almost all the projects whether we go there with exhibitions with our cultural programs or whether we work with big companies uh, is always by request we don't do any acquisition uh, so you always have to be very aware that uh, your success of course can become the greatest uh, problem and danger for you because suddenly you have a certain way of doing things mm -hmm. uh, it works here it works there okay you know why should you think twice again okay yeah. we, we did this way in baking let's do this also in solar or uh, things like this so i think that's also important uh, in this whole uh, issue of innovation culture how you really implement in your structures whether you're a small company or institution or whatsoever how you implement a kind of permanent uh, process of questioning yourself uh, uh, assessing your position uh, and reinventing yourself and we are of course we have this advantage we work a lot with art and artists and this is the most dynamic field so things are changing there every month every year mm -hmm. uh, and this helps us a lot also to Uh, to not get you know too much on our way right. of doing things, which I think is the really the, the biggest enemy of innovation is yeah. actually the success. I mean, this is sounds I, paradox, I but I couldn't agree yeah. more. It's like you've got you, 
and I'm going to equate it to a lot of the work that we do with businesses. You have the small business startup and it gets bigger and it's still nimble and it does things fast and it gets yeah. to a certain place fast. It gets certain funding and it gets to a certain size and it slows down because yeah. you put processes and implementations and standard operating procedures and all these things that have to happen. Yeah. And and it, the innovation slows down. It could still be obviously a big company making a lot of money and all that, but the innovation, then they start purchasing by acquiring because the small companies are still being innovative and mm -hmm. doing all yeah. the flexible. So it's interesting that the same thing is what you're looking at is, was, is you have to stay nimble and you have to be, not be stuck on your ways. Yeah. Yeah. And be again, what I think you have to find like the core of your vision mm -hmm. and this is what you have to maintain, but not the expressions of your vision. I think you, you also have to learn to give up things easy, yeah. but not to give up the core of your vision. And uh, that's something that is uh, pretty clear with us because we come from this cultural background mm -hmm. and this combination of uh, educational work and artistic work, this allows us uh, access to a certain kind of expertise that is now becoming incredible value also for uh, the industry, especially large companies like car manufacturers. Mm -hmm. uh, they are actually in a big crisis because they know in, in, in a few years the whole uh, ecosystem of their business is going to change. Uh, everything is becoming digital, the whole thing of uh, 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 autonomous cars, the electrification of cars. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are really in a in a very exciting, uh, for me, I would say exciting. For them, of course, it's a, it's a terrifying situation exactly. yeah. because everything is changing around them. And uh, they, uh, uh, I think, are the ones that now really need to look for new directions. And in particular, I think it's a business where from just producing technology like a car, they are producing now technology machines that are starting to live together with us. I mean, you could say also we live together with the car because we even build a garage for it. And yeah, yeah. when you see the people on the weekend, you yeah, know, carrying yeah. their cars, it's a very emotional relationship. But it's uh, still in a different way because the car without our operation is just a dead machine. Right. But the new type of cars and, and many more machines will have, a, a, in a certain way, of course, very limited, but in a certain way, they will have their own life. Because the, 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 all this autonomous car thing only makes sense if these cars really in a network, in a swarm, start to operate with, without us. Mm -hmm. uh, and this, of course, puts a completely new challenge on this whole relationship of man and machine. Uh, what will it be for people who are walking on the street when you suddenly approach by one of these driverless robots? Mm -hmm. Because they are not cars anymore. These are robots on wheels. That's, yeah. that's what it is. And we have so many ways how we are totally got used, you know, to have a kind of confidential trust system with this technology. When I'm a pedestrian and I want to cross the street and there comes the car, I know exactly what to do. You know, I look into the car, who is the guy or the, the woman in the car. I assess them, you know, some might say, oh, this is an old guy, uh, maybe you know, he should drive and I'm safe. <laughs> Others might say, oh, this is, I don't know, a young guy with dreadlocks, you know, <laughs> too dangerous. And the in interesting thing here is no matter how wrong our judgment is, it gives us safetyness. You know, yeah. we believe in our judgment, no matter how wrong it is, right. it helps us to deal with the situation. 
The next thing is then we look into the car and we make eye contact. Mm -hmm. The next thing is we have body language. You know, we wave with our hands yeah. and uh, if everything is not working, I don't know, we hunk or something. <laughs> so it's a very well-established communication process, yeah. which is no longer working the moment there is no driver in the car, but the car drives itself. Yeah. So how can you create this situation of communication that you have a kind of informed trust for the pedestrian, that the person knows the car is not stopping because the battery is empty or the computer is broken down or something, right. but the car stops really to give you your right of way. Right. And this is something where artists have a lot of ideas. Yeah. Engineers in the industry, for them usually this question is not even existing because for them the only question is okay the radar sensor has detected this is a person and not a hydrant for example uh, so the car stops yeah. the car stops for the engineer business done because he the, the car has uh, the detected the, yeah the machine works perfectly efficiently mm -hmm. but for the human outside it's just uh, what should I do what is going on exactly. so there's a lot of things missing And this is a very important uh, research area, actually, mm -hmm. uh, and the area where this um, special, I think, knowledge and expertise of the artists suddenly becomes incre uh, incredibly important. And when we think now, this is just the example of the self-driving car, when we think of the smart cities of the future, all this Internet of Things uh, uh, ideas, then we recognize that there will be more and more and more and more machines that need a kind of direct communication, not only with the person who uses it, but with the whole environment, with right. everybody. And I think for designers, this is a completely new uh, world to go in. Mm -hmm. And of course, also for engineers, but they, they really need, I think, the, the support uh, coming from the creative people. Thank you, Gerfried, for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you again, Gerfried. It was such a unique conversation about how creativity is key to innovation and just as important to remember when in research and development stage. The Arena Lab podcast team includes me, Dan Dillard, producer Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer Jake Wallace. Special thanks to Robin Tim Weiss and the amazing team at Research and Innovation Network Austria. If you enjoyed our first episode, make sure you hit that subscribe button and maybe leave us a review on iTunes so other science and innovation fans can find us. Thank you for listening.